Behold, a gateway to your own past, if you wish. Are you Aaron Burr, sir? That depends who's asking. Oh, well, sure. Sir, I'm Alexander Hamilton. I'm at your service, sir. I have been looking for you. I'm getting nervous. Sir, I heard your name at Princeton. I was seeking an accelerated course of study. When I got sort of out of sorts with a buddy of yours, I may have punched him. It's a blur, sir. He handles the financials. You punched the bursa? Yes. History's strange. It's alien. And it won't give us what we would like to have. And it's hour three of our Tuesday morning on this 9th of January, 2024. Dave Bowman with us. And if it's 8 o'clock on a Tuesday, it's Dave Does History on Bill Mick Live. Headline at BillMick.com is our robot masters. You can catch up with that story in our first hour podcast. And uh, we'll see where it goes from here. We'll let you talk to Dave later in the hour. But Dave always gets the history rolling for us in this hour to begin with. And uh, Dave, thanks for taking all three hours with us today. It's always fun. What's on your mind this morning, buddy? I was up anyway, so there you yeah, go. Well, We've done a lot of history stuff today, haven't we? Yeah, we did. It's a good deal. So he's the most popular founding father, or I guess well-known founding father today. Everybody knows who Alexander Hamilton was, right? Yeah. You've either seen the musical or you've heard about the musical. For whatever it's worth, I have not seen it. Because I just haven't had you the either. opportunity. Um, My niece loves it. Yeah. I, I'm not, I, I know what the reaction to it is from hardline historians. If you're going to the musical Hamilton to get history, you're not going to. But yeah, that's I, like, that's like going to the Da Vinci Code to get uh, b- biblical truth, right? right. Not going to happen. <laughs> Catholic history or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I'd like to see it. I just haven't had the opportunity, and I don't want to see it um, on the screen. I'd rather see it on the stage, just because. So, but Purist. thanks. To, but thanks. Yes, I am. So there. Uh, but thanks to that musical, you'd have to argue that Hamilton has become the, the American founding father that everybody actually knows. But what do we actually know about him? I think that Alexander Hamilton is one of the most interesting people uh, that was part of our founding and framing. And I think that what most people don't understand is how influential he was in that process and today. And the reason for that was that, as we're going to learn, there were two visions of how to interpret the Constitution in the early days of our republic. One was the Constitution was limiting. In other words, these are the only things that government can do, and no Mm -hmm. more shall be the, the case. The other vision was, well, it doesn't say we can't do this, so let's argue that we can. And those two men who put forward those two propositions, were trying to convince George Washington, the first president, that their particular interpretation was correct. And you'd have to argue that the interpretation that says, if it doesn't say we can't do it, we can, eventually won out. And that's really how we see the Constitution, at least federally today. If it doesn't well, and, say you and can't. And in a lot of cases, if it says you can't, they still do. Well, <laughs> There's there's some truth to that. <laughs> yeah. 
but of course, the person that advocated that position was, in fact, Alexander Hamilton. And we learn more about it when we continue. In 60 seconds, Dave does history on Bill Mick Live. If I'm hearing you right, you're telling us that Alexander Hamilton has as much influence on us today as maybe any of the founding fathers did. I would argue that. And of course, it's it's far more extensive than just his argument that the Constitution was more permissive than restrictive. Um, you know, Hamilton is going to go on. He's going to become the first Treasury Secretary of the United States. And we don't realize today how bad the economy was in 17 in the, in the early 1790s. It was a disaster, Bill. And if something didn't happen to stabilize all that, and remember that part of the constitutional agreement was that the federal government was taking on all of the Revolutionary War debt. So somebody had to figure out how to solve all that stuff. Well, guess who that person was? And of course, in the middle of all this, he's he's a political intrigue person. He likes to, you know, he he, he likes to get involved in politics. And at one point, He's involved with the presidential election uh, manipulation and those sorts of things. And, of course, the Federalist Papers and those sorts of things. We'll talk about all that. Hamilton began his modest beginning in the Caribbean. He's not actually born in the United States. He is born in Charlestown, the capital of the island of Nevis in the West Indies. And he's born, you know, in a, in a situation. He's born out of wedlock. James, James Hamilton is his father. His uh, mother is a estranged woman from her first husband. He's, uh, he's abandoned by his father. His mother dies when he's around 13 years old. He and his brother are orphaned. And yet he manages to make his way to the United States, to New York, New Jersey, uh, Elizabethtown, New Jersey. He finds himself at King's College, which is now today Columbia University. And he begins to study, as most people did in those days, a wide range of subjects, classics, economics, political philosophy, and he gets outside of the classroom. This is the early era of the burgeoning political unrest in the United States, what will become the United States. He has a very well-noted precocious understanding of economics and political issues. And it's this early era that really shapes his views and his support for American independence. He's one of the earliest supporters of American independence, which, you know, again, we tend to think of that as just this organic, almost instantaneous thing where people just, you know, flipped a switch and said, okay, we're, we're for independence now. That's not the way it worked. It, it People had to come to that conclusion for themselves. Uh, in Judaism, we say every person has to come out of Egypt for themselves. Well, it's the same kind of thing. In, in revolutionary America, everyone had to come to that conclusion about independence by themselves. Some people took longer. Some people never got there. But Hamilton is one of the earliest uh, folks that, that does this, and he is uh, very much involved with the politics and the buildup in the American Revolution. Of course, he's very closely associated with George Washington. He is a very good friend of Washington. If 
Washington is a very standoffish guy. He doesn't have, he's not, he doesn't come across as a very open guy. You know what I mean? He's, he's kind of, uh, he's, he's very formal and he doesn't not like, a social, butterfly. not a social butterfly, although he is, he's a great, Washington's a great dancer. We're told that he loves to dance. Excuse me. He loves partying and that sort of thing. And, and so, but Hamilton really becomes sort of like a friend, sort of like a son, but someone who Washington really becomes dependent upon. He is Hamilton or Hamilton is Washington's aide de camp during the American Revolutionary War. Because he understands politics, because he understands economics, he is very helpful to Washington. And Washington depends on him to the point where this young man, Alexander Hamilton, and I think we've talked about this back in October, is chafing at the bit because Hamilton doesn't want to be a desk jockey. He doesn't want to be a aide-de-camp. He wants to be a military leader. He wants to get into the fight. He wants to get into combat. And mm -hmm. he chafes at this basically for the entire war. And it isn't until October of 1781, the Battle of Yorktown, where Washington finally puts him in command of an attack. We talked about the attack on Redoubt 10 at Yorktown, and Hamilton does brilliantly. He is he leads that attack, and as we talked about back then, it's the end of the American Revolutionary War, and we were victorious. The world is turned upside down. Hooray. He then goes back to, you know, basically doing what he was doing before, which is politics, economics. As the country lurches into 1786 in the Annapolis Conference, even Hamilton is beginning to see that this, this Articles of Confederation is not working. And as an economics guy, he really sees the problems with this. He really understands that this is going to end in a disaster. Not only is it going to end in a civil war between 13 independent countries, but it's going to end up in a financial disaster because none of these states, with the exception of New York, seem to know what they're doing financially. They're just printing money willy-nilly. They're, they're not maintaining you know, systems of, of exchange. They're taxing each other. It's just a mess. And so he becomes one of the early advocates of the Constitutional Convention. And of course, when the convention is called, it's Hamilton who is one of three delegates from New York. The problem that he has in this convention is that he is on the opposite side of the other two, and so that's going to create some problems for him at the convention. But he's going to go, and he will have his role to play. <laughs>
joins us for our weekly dive into history. Pay attention, there will be a test. Nah, there won't be a test, but you will be held accountable. Bill McLive. Thank you, Victor Lyle. Dave Bowman is with us as we're taking a look at Alexander Hamilton, guy who still influences us to influences us today. Dave says, Dave, we were at the uh, Constitutional Convention, and he's one of three delegates from New York, but he's not having an easy time of it. No, he's not. And by the way, he was born this week in 1755, which is why we're talking about him. But he, um, his problem is that he is an advocate for what is known as a strong centralized government. And most of the New York delegation, the other two, are are absolutely dead set against that. As we've talked on Constitution Thursday in the past, New York is probably the strongest of all the 13 states. It's probably the one state that could have gone it alone if it wanted to. It's the only state that has a working economy for all practical purposes. But he... Hamilton wants a strong centralized government, and of course, the other states are very suspicious of that. If you know anything about early American republicanism, you know that the states really wanted to be sovereign and independent. And here's Hamilton talking at one point during the convention about doing away with state governments and replacing them with either one or three national governments, one central government or three regionalized governments. And of course, this didn't go over well. He ends up leaving the convention because he keeps getting outvoted by the rest of his delegation. And he's he's kind of, you know, he's kind of petulant about it. And he leaves. And ostensibly, he leaves to go deal with some court cases because he's a lawyer. But reality of it is he doesn't see why he should be there because he's not getting his way on anything. This leads to George Washington, who's the president of the convention, writing him a very passionate letter. I need you here. Come back, please. And eventually he does. So by coming back, he's participatory, but now the thing has changed because the other two New York delegates have gotten frustrated and bored and irritated, and so they've left. So Hamilton is the New York delegation now, which means that he's going to start getting his way at least from New York's standpoint. And of course, this leads to the passage of the Constitution, the approval of the Constitution as we uh, proposed it. It's sent out to the states for ratification. And this is where Hamilton really gets involved now. Along with James Madison, John Jay, he works diligently on the Federalist Papers, which we've talked about, I think, to some degree, I know I have on my show, The Federalist Papers are not a commentary on the Constitution. If you're looking for commentary about what it means, all that kind of stuff, not what you're going to get in the Federalist Papers. What you actually get is an argument for why the the Constitution should be ratified. And it's a point-by-point argument. And yes, you get some indication of what they believe it means, but they they, they write these letters to the New York Papers, They're compiled into a book, they make it all the way around the country, and they're commonly discussed around the country. Somewhere around 51 of the the 85 essays are written by Hamilton. So if you really want to know what Hamilton thought, this is where you're going to find it. And what you're going to find is that he is very much a big government, strong 
central government kind of guy. Which seems to fly in the face of what everybody else wants, but his arguments are fairly persuasive. And we continue in 30 seconds, Dave Does History on Bill McLive. Taking a look at Alexander Hamilton and his role in the formation of the country, in all honesty, and the influence there. Dave, uh, and he was very influential. He's trying to get the, I, maybe he brings the economic knowledge to the table, the that kind of wisdom as, as to where things should go, And but he's a big government guy. He is a big government guy. He's a, and, and even big government may not be the right term. Strong central government is really what he's for. And of course, this is this is not what even today, if you talk amongst the conservatives, that's not what we want to hear. We don't like strong central government. We like to hear federalism. We like to hear Tenth Amendment. We like to hear those kinds of things. Matt or Hamilton was dead set against those things. He thought that the idea of individual states and individual state governments was destructive. He thought that that would lead to conflict, if not outright war, which you'd have to argue kind of happens. So (laughs) you you can't really argue much with him there. The Federalist Papers are, of course, his chief contribution to this. It is... They are very influential. As we've mentioned before, there were anti-Federalist papers, but they weren't as well organized, nor were they as well detailed as the Federalist papers were. And so the Constitution gets ratified. Yay. Hamilton is in that group of people that is against the idea of the Bill of Rights. He thinks that's a mistake, as does James Madison, the guy who actually writes it. But that's a story for another day. And as Washington is elected, he looks around and says, I need somebody who knows economics. We need a secretary or treasurer. Guess who he picks? Alexander Hamilton. Mm-hmm. He is the secretary of treasurer from 1789 to 1795. And he advocates again for the federal government to assume the war debts from the individual states. He centralizes, stabilizes the national debt. But the big thing he's really about See if this sounds familiar to anybody. He wants to create the Bank of the United States, a central bank to regulate currency, provide credit, foster economic growth. And he's pro-tariff, pro-taxes, including the rather controversial whiskey tax, which maybe we'll get to someday, to generate revenue for the government. This is what he wants to do. And this puts him at loggerheads, and I mean loggerheads, I mean, you know, people, two people not liking each other, with Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson is the Secretary of State, but only part of that time. And Jefferson is a proponent of agrarianism, states' rights. He deeply distrusts Hamilton's vision of a strong central government and a powerful financial elite. He's afraid that Hamilton's policies would create a government too similar to the British monarchy which, of course, we had just fought to break away from. Mm-hmm. I don't even think that that sentence captures how much these two disliked each other. But if there's one person that Hamilton disliked more than Jefferson, guess who it was? Aaron Burr. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he dislikes Aaron Burr so much that Hamilton is involved in some shenanigans during the election of 1800 
to manipulate things so that Jefferson, his hated rivalry in the cabinet, actually wins the presidency, which, of course, will lead to further disagreements with Burr, and we all know where that ends up. The remarkable thing, however, is that Hamilton's influence continues. And even after he is dead, put in his grave by Aaron Burr, Hamilton will continue to influence the nation's development. How interesting that is. And, of course, a lot of West Virginia history tied around these two with Blennerhassett Island coming into play there in the Ohio River and the like. Learned a lot about that as a kid in the eighth grade. It was uh, it was just something else. So Dave with us doing history through the hour. Next segment, we'll let you get your comments and questions in as we wrap up what's going on and uh, catch up with what's going on with uh, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton here on Bill McLive. 321-768-1240. Let you get your thoughts in play. We're back in moments on 92.7 FM WMMB. common radio okay not a test not a quiz but if you've got thoughts or comments for dave bowman as we uh wrap up dave does history we'll let you in here momentarily talking alexander hamilton today and uh dave you mentioned that he had these rivalries going on not the least of which was with aaron burr and that one eventually cost him dearly yeah it it eventually cost him his life it cost burr the presidency it cost a lot of things but I still say to you that Hamilton has more influence today on how we operate as a country than probably any other founding father. It's, it's intriguing. And it all goes back to this argument that he has with Jefferson over the U.S. Bank and this, this idea of a strong central government. This ideological clash extends, like I said, to their, to their constitutional interpretation. Jefferson advocates for very strict interpretation of the Constitution. If it doesn't say you can do it, you cannot. Whereas Hamilton believes in the concept of implied powers, he believes that if it doesn't say you can't, you can. And this argument isn't just theoretical. This isn't just two law professors arguing, you know, stuff in a, in a classroom somewhere. It has practical implications on the nation. Jefferson is opposed to the proposal for the National Bank, and this clash actually leads, it lays the groundwork for the formation of the first two American political parties. Hamilton's policies giving rise to the Federalist Party, which makes sense. Jefferson's forming the basis for the Democrat-Republican Party. Don't read into that modern interpretation because it's not there. Right. 
Right. So today we have this two-party system that people argue about, you know, is it good, is it bad, is it indifferent, whatever it is. But you can trace the beginnings of that straight back to Hamilton and Jefferson's disagreement over the National Bank and whether the Constitution should be loosely interpreted or strictly interpreted. And you would have to argue then that Hamilton's view actually is the is the view that wins out for the better or the worse, however you want to see it. But remember that he believed that a strong central government was better for the country than 13 or more, because by that time it was almost 15, um, independent sovereign states deciding what they thought was best. Now, you may say to yourself, Dave, how do we know that the Hamilton side won in all this? Well, after Hamilton's shenanigans, Thomas Jefferson becomes president of the United States. And Thomas Jefferson is presented with a proposal to spend the treasury dollars of the United States of America to buy something. And he makes the decision, even though the Constitution has no provisions for doing this, he decides to go ahead and buy Louisiana without congressional approval, without without constitutional argument, none of that. This is the guy who was worried about having a king, right? This is that guy who was worried about <laughs> if the Constitution doesn't say you can do it, you can. Mm -hmm. And so Thomas Jefferson says, well, it's best for the country, and it doesn't say we can't, so I guess we should go ahead and do it, right? <laughs> so, How did Hamilton react to that? Well, by that point, Hamilton was out of the picture, but uh, you get the idea here that, uh, you know, the Hamilton there model, win. the yeah. Hamilton model actually wins and still influences us today. We continue in a minute on Bill McLive. Dave does history on Bill McLive. Your call's coming up momentarily. So, uh, Dave, wrapping up Alexander Hamilton here, what do you think? Well, I think that he is, as I said, one of the most influential of the Framing Fathers and Founding Fathers. And still to this day, his actions, his ideas, his beliefs really are more influential than, than say, Thomas Jefferson's ended up being. His contributions were integral to the formation and development of the United States. He established a robust financial system. He, of course, played a huge role in the Constitution, getting ratified. His impact is, you know, undeniable. But it's his story. It's not just politics and economics. It's, it's personal resilience. He overcame that, that poor birth. Managed to become someone of, of significance. And so his legacy endures, not just in a musical, but hopefully you've taken the time to actually look at Alexander Hamilton and understand how he influences you right down to today. Get to the phones. We'll go to line one. Good morning. You're up on Bill McLive. Good morning. This is Mario in Cape Canaveral. Yeah, Mario. Great discussion. I love these discussions. The, um, the Tenth Amendment to, to the Constitution for these United States and that's how it was, it was uh, phrased back in the very beginning. 
these United States of America, the Tenth Amendment may not stop, uh, you know, federal government overreach, but it does give the states the legal ground to challenge the federal government. And so that's, that's where I see the power of the, uh, of the Tenth Amendment, that the, the states now have legal grounds to challenge uh, the federal government to, for, for their overreach. Well, and we give it a shot anyway. Dave, how are you reading that? Well, now we're into different waters. Um, the Tenth Amendment obviously was important at, at ratification because, again, it was part of that Jeffersonian resistance of a strong central government. Keep in mind, though, that the Constitution that existed when the Tenth Amendment was ratified in 1791 is not the Constitution that we have today. You have the 14th Amendment, which, as as Professor Emil Akil Amir says, created a new Constitution. And the 14th Amendment fundamentally changed that relationship between the states and the federal government. For the better or the worse, those things that we see there, and, you, and again, when you read the Constitution, you have to read the entirety of it. It's, you know, it's, I go through this with people with Scripture. You can't just take one verse and go, that's the be-all, end-all of it. You have to mm-hmm. take the whole thing. And when you start getting in with the 14th Amendments, you know, not Section 3, by the way. Um, when you start, <laughs> I was going to go there. When you start getting into the 14th Amendment, and you understand what the 14th Amendment did, it it changes how that relationship works. Is there still federalism? Yes. Does the federal government still have to abide by it? Well, that's the question that we argue every day. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that based on the 14th Amendment's arguments, Hamilton would have supported that. In fact, he argued vigorously for many of the things that the 14th Amendment did. So you'd have to say that once again, Hamilton's viewpoint won out. You think Hamilton would have argued against Colorado and Maine and any other state that might want to take a candidate for president off the ballot? Yes, he would have. Again, his his advocacy during the during the convention was do away with state governments. Now, he also didn't believe that. You know, people should be voting for president. I mean, they 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 put into place a system that specifically made the presidential election not a popular election. So right. he may not have seen it quite the same way we do, but but he would have been very much for the federal government determining how those things were happening. That seems to be the argument from the Trump team. Well, again, Hamilton, Hamilton. My argument with the 14-3, and I don't want to get too distracted here, is 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 not 14-3. It's 14-5, which makes it very clear that this is all of Section 14 is by congressional direction, not state direction, which, again, fundamentally changes the role between the states and the federal government. It's what it did. Mm-hmm. And goes back to what you say about having to read the entirety of it, not rely on one small section to make, make a decision without having an understanding of the whole. Right, which is unfortunately, I, I've been guilty of that myself in the past. I mean, we were Haven't guilty we of that. Yeah. yeah, we were guilty of that earlier in the show. And how do lawyers make livings if they yeah. don't do that? Right. So, 
you got to be careful about those kinds of things. And and it gets frustrating, I will tell you that, because we, we're raised with a certain belief point. We're, we're raised with a certain attitude. We believe that all the framers were homogenous and they all believed the same thing. They didn't. Not right. only did they not believe the same thing, but some of them changed their mind. James Madison agreed with Hamilton, but wrote the Bill of Rights because he knew it wouldn't get ratified without it. So, you know, you have to understand that these were men just like you are, just like we are, who were men of their times, but had a vision of the future. And sometimes I think that's what we lack today more than anything else, Bill. We don't have that vision of the future. What are we actually doing politically, socially, functionally to protect the future? These that's guys one of my arguments to. on term limits is, is because it eliminates statesmen. You got a guy in an office that knows he's only going to be there four or eight years. What's his commitment to long-standing quality policy for the state or the country. It, it, it disturbs me. Well, we don't have them for the federal Congress yet, but, but we sure. actually have term limits. We just don't use them. So Yeah, in every election. Same, yeah, you keep voting for the same guy. I mean, there's a reason why House elections are every two years to prevent that very thing from happening, but we don't use it. So what do you what, if we're not going to use it, what do we expect politicians to do? Mm -hmm. Exactly right. And it occurs far, far, far too often. Have you looked ahead to next Tuesday? Have any clue what we want to take a look at next week? Looking at the Virginia statutes on uh, religion and religious freedom, but I'm not sure yet. I, if, 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 if That's kind of where I'm leaning, but not there okay. yet. Well, we've got a lot, a lot of options to take a look at, which it ought to be a lot of fun. Always is when Dave joins us for Dave Does History. Of course, the cool thing is, what? A couple of months ago, you started joining us for all three hours of a Tuesday, and, and it's a lot of fun having you back in here for the whole show. I appreciate you doing that. I know it's a sacrifice to get up so early and be here. Well, it's it's easier when my wife's at work, so because then I don't have to. So keep her working, Dave. Right, right. <laughs> she has to work Monday nights from now on. That's how it works out. <laughs> I told her that, but I'm not sure she's going to agree with there are links to Dave Bowman, his other podcast, The Dave Bowman Show, and uh, the What the Frock with uh, Rod Cook. So those are posted for you on today's show page at BillMick.com, which is headlined, Our Robot Masters. You can dig into that story in the podcast section at BillMick.com and on the Bill Mick Live iHeartRadio channel. A little more history today than we normally do. We had maybe an hour and a half of it, so that's not too bad. Dave, thank you again. I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday, pal. We'll see you then.